Good evening. As mentioned last lecture, that while the Vilna Gaon defended and highly praised the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, he vigorously condemned the teachings of another brilliant rabbi whose wisdom was based on Kabbalah, the famous founder of the Hasidic movement, the Baal Shem Tov. The Hasidic movement and the Groz and others' oppositions to it is the focus of this lecture. Now, before I start this lecture, I just want to make a comment. I found it very interesting that until this point, I got no, you know, pre-messages like which angle you're going to take. Somehow or other, nobody cared that much what happened with Rashi or the Spanish Inquisition or the times of the Romans, or the Black Plague, or the refounding of Islam. But everyone, coming from wherever they were, wanted to know which direction this class would go in. So, just a little background. Um, all four of my great-grandparents were Polish Hasidic Jews. My namesake, which is Menachem Andochaim, is after two of my great-grandfathers, Menachem Mendel was a Raziner Chassid, Tama the Kutzke Rebbe. Menachem Mendel, my name, I'm named after the Kutzke Rebbe, Menachem Mendel in Morgenstern. And Chaim was named after my other great-grandfather, which was a, who was a Belzer Chassid. Um, my father, however, post-Holocaust, studied in Moshe Feinstein's yeshiva, and all of our Menhagim are Lithuanian yeshivas, the Snagdish, whatever you want to call it. Um... But I think I have a pretty good background in both. My wife is a, a direct descendant of the Bnei Saskha, which is one of the greatest Hasidic Rebbe's. And on her grandmother's side, she's a direct descendant of the Balatanya. Her grandfather <laughs> was a Lithuanian rabbi, a student of Rolochan and Wasserman, and a Ben Bias of the Chazanish. So on both of our sides, we have, we have a pretty uh, strong background from both sides. Around 200 years after the flowering of Kabbalah in Svas, a new movement arose in Europe within Torah Judaism. The Hasidic movement, Hasidic meaning pious, was founded by Rabbi Yisrael ben Eliezer, known as the Baal Shem Tov, which means the master of a good name. In much literature, the Baal Shem Tov is called the Besht. Now, although contemporary Jews often use the word chassid as a synonym for ultra-Orthodox, I mean, I, I can't tell you how often I will travel somewhere and ask, someone will ask me, are you Hasidic? And I'll say no. Um, but it, it was, a, 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 and today people call Hasidic ultra-Orthodox. When the Hasidic movement started, it was considered revolutionary. It was considered liberal, religiously liberal. That's how the Hasidim were viewed. Its opponents, who were the Misnagdim, were themselves very Orthodox Jews. More than anything else, the stories that each of the groups will tell about their rabbinic leaders really exemplify the differences amongst them. The Misnagdim were extremely proud of the fact that their leader, the Vilna Goyen, had delivered an advanced Talmudic discourse in the city of Torah, Vilna, 
at the age of seven years old. And then he studied Jewish texts 18 hours a day. That was his study session. That was including davening and eating and anything else he had to take care of. The founder of the Hasidim, Rabbi Saul Baal Shem Tov, was a hero of a very different sort of tales. He was born in 1698 in Okop, which is in Podolia, which is the Podolia province, which is now Ukraine. The Hasidim spoke how in his teenage years, he worked as an assistant in a cheder, in, 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 in an elementary school. He would round up students each day from their home and lead them to school singing songs. Later, when he got older, he married, and he went to live off, uh, far off in the Carpathian Mountains. There, the Baal Shem Tov worked for the first years of his married life as a laborer, digging clay and lime, which his wife then sold. At a later point, as a couple, they ran an inn. However, during this time, the Baal Shem Tov was also studying with a secret society of Jewish mystics known as the Nistarim. Nistar, of course, meaning the hidden. And he spends much time in the Carpathian Mountains, in the forests of the Carpathian Mountains, in contemplation and solitude. His Hasidic followers subsequently likened his period when he was laboring and going to the Carpathian Mountains as Moshe's period in Midian. Like Moshe had his period in Midian before he came onto the limelight, so too the Baal Shem Tov would go out to solitude in isolation and no one knew who he was. Around 1736, at the age of 38 years old, the Besht, the Baal Shem Tov, revealed himself as a healer and a leader. His last name, which literally means the master of the good name, was one that was frequently applied to Jewish life for people who are workers and healers. He traveled from community to community, developing a reputation as a spiritual holy man, mystical healer, and literally attracting huge crowds wherever he went. His fame spread not only amongst the Jews, but amongst the Polish nobles. His biography, the biography of his oral stories about his life which was posthumously written by his students, describes spiritual powers and knowledge, miracle working, able, the ability to predict the future. In turn, these notions were passed on to his students and successors and shaped the Hasidic doctrine of the Rebbe. Around 1740, the Besht himself established himself in the Ukrainian town of Mezibush which is near the borders of Poland and Ukraine, at the corner there, actually right near Lithuania. He gathered around him numerous follows, followers and key disciples, whom he initiated into the secrets of his teaching, but not by systematic exposition. Rather, he would teach by sayings and tales with parables, which would have a profound Kabbalistic depth. These sayings, which were oral at the time, would later be written by his students and would comprise the beginning of Hasidic ideology. And Hasidim started to surround from neighboring towns and countries, but as opposed to the yeshiva, which was a systematic analysis of Talmud, of Jewish texts, the way the Baal Shem Tov would teach was through stories. He was a storyteller. And the story of the Hasidim told of the Shem Tov, they would always have him 
describe as he used to smoke a pipe. And he'd be telling a story literally like Grandpa. He would go and tell stories. Now, I'll tell you the truth. I once had a conversation with the Mujayarov. The Mujayarov was a great, great Torah scholar. He was the nephew of the Satmar Rebbe, Rabbi Yol Teitelbaum. In fact, he was one of two possible successors when Rabbi Yol Teitelbaum, who was the greatest Hasidic Rebbe in America, post-world, in, probably ever, um, has the largest Hasidic in America, the Satmar, when he passed away in 1979, there was a question of who would be his um, replacement. And either the Mujah Rebbe or the Beirach Moshe should end up being the Beirach Moshe. So I once asked the Mujah Rebbe, let me ask you a question. Who is this Baal Shem Tov? I mean, we have no writings. He tells stories. I mean, how do you know he was so great? I, mean, it was, I was not asking at all. He was a very holy Jew. I mean, he has to get, he had numbers on it. He was a Holocaust survivor. He had numbers on his arms. And when you spoke to him, you felt his, his presence really, really did. So he told me like this. He said, a beautiful muscle. He said, imagine the following scene. He says, imagine, I'll, I'll give it, he did it based in Israel, but I'll do it in America. He says, imagine somebody would pull up in New York, driving a taxi. A taxi driver. And, all of a sudden, you would see a Moshe Feinstein, Rabbi Kamenetsky, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, this Hasidic Rebbe, everyone studying by him. Zatmar Rebbe, everyone going to study by this taxi driver. Now, you don't know what, you've never studied by a taxi driver. You see a Moshe Feinstein asking him questions. You see a Rebbe come asking him questions. So, one thing you know is this taxi driver is very great. If they're all asking him questions, look at his students. Right? So that's how he told me about the Baal Shem Tov. We don't know who the Baal Shem Tov was 100%, but we do know who his students were. And he had great students. What motivated the Baal Shem Tov? After the pogroms and the massacres of large parts of Eastern European Jewry, as we discussed in the last lecture with Kalmaniki and Shabtai Tzvi, Europe was not only devastated physically, they were financially <coughs> impoverished, the Jews. After the Kalmaniki massacres, all their communities, to a large part, had been uprooted, destroyed, and really, if you want to, on a small level, look at Japan with one tsunami, could you imagine, magnify that times hundreds, Right, communities completely, completely annihilated. They were impoverished. And beyond that, there were two fake messiahs, as we discussed last time. There was Shatai Tzvi, and there was the messiah of Jacob Frank. And Val Shem Tov was a contemporary of Jacob Frank. He saw Jacob Frank, as discussed the last time, who was a Sabbatean, a, become a Christian, become Shmad. And he saw Jews around him discouraged because of that. And he was motivated to incur- give encouragement to the people around him who were downtrodden. I once heard of a Soloveitchik discuss what it was like in the, the 1940s, the late 1940s, after the Holocaust. He said, like, when you're in, if you were in America, in New York, in 1946, 1947, he said he would go on the trains and he missionaries stopping him all left and right. He said, Look what happens to your people. Shouldn't you convert to Christianity? Until he actually mentioned that the state of Israel flipped that around. Actually, one of the results of that is that the Jews were so depressed after the Holocaust. You have to imagine everything was destroyed. The European yeshivas were uprooted. Six million Jews were killed. And if you would have asked somebody in 1946 would there be a state of Israel, if they were a smart betting man, they would say, absolutely not. 
In fact, the state of Israel was closed in 1946 for any immigration into it. You know, if you would imagine what it was like to be a Jew in the mid-17th century, and going on to the, to, to, to the mid-18th century, it was depressing. Everything looked bleak. And one of the victims of this was Jewish scholarship. And ultimately, the masses were not studying Torah, and they eked out a meager living, and as a result of the lack of Jewish gospel, because we always know that the more Torah a Jew has, the more the Jew is empowered in their Judaism. The less Torah, the less connection to study a Jew has, the more the paraplegic a Jew is. Right? The more it's not a surprise, that the more pious a person is, usually goes with Torah scholarship. You look at any community, the more people know, the more people do. The less people know, the less they're going to do. And the Baal Shem Tov sought to change the common man. And to the common people, the Besh seemed extremely admirable. He was characterized with extraordinary simplicity. He was somebody people could relate to. He taught them that true divine scholarship, divine service was not only scholarship, was not only Torah knowledge, but a sincere love of God, and a firm faith and belief where prayers come from the heart, he made Judaism more a democracy. <laughs> it wasn't just the elite scholars who could reach the highest levels. Anyone can go ahead and become great in Yiddishkeit, become great in Judaism. All you had to do was to love Hashem, to serve Hashem with your heart, to see Hashem in this, in this world. He gave new interpretations to Judaism within the classical text. And these ideas were embellished and articulated even further by his students. These ideas offer the common man a new approach to the Yiddishkeit. At the same time, it attracted some of the elite scholars who wanted to learn higher levels of humility and service of Hashem. In contrast to other sectarian Torps type of te teachings, Hasidism was not dogmatic, it was not ritual, but it was more psychological. It aimed to change the belief, but not only the belief of the person, not only the ideology of the person, excuse me, but the believer himself or herself. Hasidism tried to change who the believer was in character. And traditional Jewish study to an extent and scholarship was not replaced, but it was, quote-unquote, tried to be spiritualized. Okay, look at source number one. This was a parable that Hasidim had used to explain the situation. An apprentice blacksmith, after he had learned his trade from the master, made a list for himself of how he must go about his craft. How should he pump the bellows, secure the anvil, and wield the hammer? He omitted nothing. When he went to work at the king's palace, however, he discovered to his dismay that he could not perform his duties and was dismissed. He had forgotten to know one thing, perhaps, because it was so obvious. The first, he must ignite a spark to kindle the fire. He had to return to the master who reminded him of the first principle which he had forgotten. The Baal Shem Tov felt he had to reignite the spark. He felt that the Jews around him, certainly the common man, was missing that spark of Yiddishkeit and therefore, all of his Judaism was cold or shallow to an extent. And he was wildly popular. The Baal Shem Tov embellished and really used the Arizal's Kabbalah as his base work. Many of the dominant themes of the, the Besh's teaching 
were not unique to the Hasidic movement, but he stressed them. He was not innovative, but he focused a little bit differently on it. The best was particularly fond of the Talmudic statement in the Mesech Sanhedrin, Kuf Vav Rachmana Libabai, that Hashem wants the heart. Right? God desires the heart more than power or knowledge. He wants our heart to be into Him. And He always used to say, Kol Ha'aretz Malich Voido. As the Pasuk says in, in Yeshaya, that all the world is filled with God's glory. Hey, don't think that you have to turn back the pleasures of this world. Enjoy the world. Not like the ascetics, the prushim. You can enjoy the world. He used to say that just because something is beautiful, don't deny it. However, recognize that its beauty comes from God. If you can recognize the beauty that comes from Hashem, then that itself is uplifted as well. And because the whole world was filled with Hashem, kol ha'aretz malich we always have to be happy. God's everywhere. Hey, the Baal Shem Tov used to say that no child is born only through pleasure and joy. That's how a child is born. And if you want to give fruits to Hashem, it also has to be through pleasure and joy. Hasidus would focus on the pleasure and joy in Yiddishkeit, the pleasure and joy in Judaism. In his time period, many of the pious Jews would fast Mondays and Thursdays they would restrain themselves from many of the pleasures of this world. Kabbalistic terminology was heavily used in the Hasidic world, much more so than in other circles, especially after Shabtai Tzvi, as we discussed last time, when they backed away from Kabbalah, the Hasidic movement would go full force back into Kabbalah and really put it in the hands of the common man. However, the Hasidic um, part of Kabbalah was not how to understand God as much, but the psychology of Kabbalah, the, the appreciation of how God is everywhere in this world, they, they almost had a pantheistic approach to the world. Now, not Spinoza's pantheism. Spinoza said that God created the world and everything else was a force in its own. They would say, God is everywhere in this world. And we'll discuss more later how that would cause problems. Hasidic prayer. Now, to the outsider, especially in the Baal Shem Tov's day. Now, you can go to synagogues in even our day. Go to Stolen in New York or in Jerusalem. They scream out the entire prayer. You'll hear them, not just on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. You'll go there from the beginning to end. They're screaming. If you go to, to Rosh Wilson Stolen Borough Park, you'll have a three and a half hour davening with everyone going like this, you know, all around you. So, you better be in good shape if you want to daven there or you'll be the only one Standing cell. The prayer was very, very important part. It said, Pasuk says, All my bones say to the Lord who is like you. And the early Hasidic followers especially would be very enthusiastic in prayer. They would do jumping jacks and even crazy things that we can't imagine. I use crazy, it's how we do it. But the Baal Shem Tov used to give a marshal to this. Okay, and again, this would also cause opposition, this kind of prayer services. But he defended it with a story. He says as follows. If a, a deaf man walks by a hall where a wedding reception is going on and everyone's dancing and going around, but he can't hear the music. So if he looks by a wedding, he's going to look at these people like they're mad people. But he just can't hear the music to recognize it's a wedding. Says the Baal Shem, of course we're going to get all excited by prayer. It's a wedding. Every prayer is an opportunity to connect to Hashem. Would you, would you, do you, I've been in a couple of weddings the past few weeks. 
I mean, I, I, you know, a clinic is funny, and I can tell you that there are people there who are floored. They never saw this in their whole lives. I mean, you go to a Jewish wedding, people are dancing all kinds of decorate ways, and they're dressed a little bit funny sometimes. Um, but it's a joyous moment. No one's going to question that. Well, if you understand what prayer is to the Baal Shem, why would you get upset? People are doing jumping jacks during prayer, or jumping on tables. The best also emphasize the role of the tzaddik. The role of the tzaddik. He is the model to lead religious life. He did not, however, emphasize the role of the tzaddik like his, like his, um, his future um, students would do. Especially his successor of Dova Mezrich, who explained that the tzaddik is literally the leader of the people. And as one of his, Dova Bear, the Magid's students himself said, I didn't go to learn Torah by him, but to see how he ties his shoes. Right? That the ideal relationship is to get close to a tzaddik who will tell you and teach you how to get close to Hashem. The belief in the tzaddik and the rabbi became one of Hasidic's strongest and most controversial ideas from the start. Hasidim's opponents charged that the tzaddikim, plural, often enriched themselves, because they were getting presents, so we'll discuss that as well, or at the expense of their followers. In future generations, it not only became, a rebel was the most righteous, but his children, it became a dynasty. The children followed, one after another. And the rebels became a type of Jewish royalty. When one died, he was succeeded either by a son, or a son-in-law, and many of the Hasidic groups were built by great rabbis, and when these great rabbis died, the Hasidic group died as well. The Besht died in 1760, leaving behind Rabbi Dov Bear of Mezrich, his Ezek's successor. Shortly before his death, the Besht told the people, standing near his bed, I grieve not at my death, for I can see a door opening while the other is closing. Rabbi Dolber, who became known as the Magid of Mezarich, succeeded the Baal Shem Tov as the head of the Hasidic movement and further developed the Hasidic movement's philosophies and spread it throughout Eastern Europe. The Baal Shem Tov was a man of the people, while his successor, Dolber of Mezarich, devoted himself to creating students. He was a brilliant pedagogue who was able to, to build people around him this is, I, I saw this recently, I was floored. Carl Jung, who is not one of the Jewish psychologists, I mean, you think Freud, you think Adler, Fromm, you know, there's so many, I mean, I think out of the top 50, like 30-something were ranked, or Jews, of the psychologists. Carl Jung is not one of them, okay? In fact, he was accused of Nazi sympathies by some, okay? You can read this, it's in Carl Jung speaking. He said, near his death, a, that all of his advances in psychology were preempted by the Hasidic Jew Rabdov Bear, which should give you an insight into how much of a teacher he was. He was the theological and sociological architect of the Hasidic movement. He built what is called his Chavra Kadisha, his holy society of students, and all of the famous Hasidic rabbis, or many of the early Hasidic rabbis, were his students including the Balatanya, the Levi Zekhmetich, Rav Nachman Chernobyl, Rav Nachman Breslov, they're all his students. 
From his court, the students went forth, and they tracted many Jews to Hasidus. Now, after his passing, there would no longer be one leader of the Hasidic movement. In fact, his students branched out into different directions. And at first, they went to two major areas. In Ukraine, in, in Galicia, was one area, and in Lita, including Belarusia, White Russia, was the other. Three disciples of the, the, the Magid went to Ukraine and, uh, and, and Poland. As Rabnoam Ali Melech Milizhinsk, Rabnoam Yitzhak Miborditchev, and Rabnoam Nochom Min Chernobyl, the Moray Naim. Besides a grandson of the Baal Shem to Rabbach of Tolchen, who would later be called Rabbach of Nezibosh. To Lithuania and White Russia went Rav Shner Zalman of Liadi, who formed the Chabad Hasidus, and Rabbi Aaron of Karlin, who would found the Karlin of Hasidus. Now, Rav Shner Zalman of Liadi, who lived from 1745 until 1812, known as the Alta Rebbe, the Baal Hatanya, wrote the famous work, the Tanya, he founded Chabad, was supposed to be a different focus than the rest of Hasid. Until this day, Chabad is radically different than the other Hasidic groups. Not only in dress, but in many, many areas, Chabad is unique. Okay, Chabad, of course, stands for Chachma, Bina, and Das. Right? We discussed it by the spheres, we discussed Kabbalah. Those are the highest three spheres of Kabbalah. There was Shner Zalman, who was a genius, a Talmudic scholar of note, probably the greatest of the Talmudic scholars of the, of the students of the Magid, focused more in the intellectual area of Hasidus. Accordingly, the Magid sent Rishner Zalman to Lithuania. He sent Rishner Zalman to proselytize, to get Hasidim in Lithuania. And that would lead, which we'll discuss soon, to a battle royale in the subsequent years. Because he sent his most Talmudic students, you know where he's sending them to, to the most Talmudic part of Europe, to get students in Lithuania, in an area where there were anyways resistance. And the, the bulk of what we call the Nisnag de Hasidic fight was really against Chabad. Okay? For the most part, the original Khairim was against Chabad, and the battle was not with the students on the side, because they weren't, they weren't, it was a different, different geographic area completely. It was Rishner Zaman, which you'll see when the stories will go on, the people being arrested were Chabad Hasidim. Rishner Zaman wrote the Tanya. And in the beginning of the Tanya, a couple of people here are the Chabad, let's just say it for over. So he says as follows, he's, he, has, he includes responses to many questions, which all of our faithful in our country have constantly asked, seeking advice, each according to his station, so as to receive moral guidance in the servants of God. Since no time, no lo- since time no longer permits of replying to everyone individually, couldn't send one email in those days, uh, and in detail on this particular problem or that, furthermore, forgetfulness is common. I have therefore recorded all the replies to all the questions to be preserved as a sign, as an outpost. That was with the focus of the Tanya. As early, in early 1792, the first handwritten copies were given out to Hasidim, and by 1796, the Balatanya, Shazam added some chapters, and it was widely distributed. Rabbi Levi of Berdichev, who was one of the great Hasidic rabbis and, and a good friend of the Balatanya, when he got the work, he jumped up and down, and he said, it is incredible 
that he managed to fit such a great God into such a small book. About the time that he remains, not only in Chabad circles, but in general, a classic to this day. Other great early Rebbes included, who were in the Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia and Poland, Rabbi Nachman Mendel of Kutsk, Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, and Rabbi Sof Freeman of Rajin. Rabbi Nachman Mi Breslov was the great grandson of the Baal Shem Tov. He lived a very short life from 1772 to 1811. He is viewed as perhaps the most imaginatively creative Hasidic thinker. thinker. He was extremely extraordinarily, he had the genes of his great-grandfather. He was an extraordinarily great storyteller. You can read Rav Nachman's books. On, the stories are extraordinarily deep, always with beggars and princes, but with a very deep um, message. And he founded the Breslover sect of Hasidus. Rav Nachman of Kotsk, who is the, most of the Polish Hasidic groups, Ger Hasidim, which is the largest Hasidic group in Israel, and was by far the largest Hasidic group in Europe pre-Holocaust, had a million followers. Um, Ger came from the Menachem Mendel of Kutsk. Alexander came from Menachem Mendel of Kutsk. Rezin came from Menachem Mendel of Kutsk. His was a focus, not so much on the tzaddik, he threw, he was not the tzaddik at all, but MS, truth, integrity, that was what the Kutsk Rebbe was about. And we saw Freeman, the Regina Rebbe, was a student of Menachem Mendel of Kutsk at first. He was majesty. If he, his court, he literally had a court, like, he had like a king. You have to imagine he would dress like royalty. He had a carriage. He had servants. And he felt that the rabbi, he took the idea of rabbi as far as royalty to its highest levels. Hasidim would spread throughout Europe in the 19th century. Eventually would hit Hungary and Romania as well. Uh, before we go on further, I just want to discuss one very famous uh, Hasidic rabbi who who everyone likes to speak of. I would say if, of the stories that people tell, it's probably the most are about him. And that is a Levi Yitzhak of Berdichev. He's like the beloved Rebbe. I mean, he, there's so many stories about Rebbe Levi the Kedushas Levi. Rebbe Levi Yitzhak, who lived from 1740 to 1809, was the 26th generation, go back 26 generations, going over a thousand years, of, of great rabbis. He was born to Rabbi Mayor of Hoshkov, According to Hasidic tradition, that on the day of Levi Yitzchak's birth, the Baal Shem Tov had a Kiddush, and he informed his followers that the soul of a great defender of the Jewish people had entered the world. Levi Yitzchak studied with Rabbi Shmolka of Nickersburg, and he became a rabbi of a few towns, but he was chased out by the, the, the people who did not like Hasidus. In fact, the first position he had, we talk about being a the danger of being a, a pulpit rabbi who people don't like you. He had to leave on Hoshana Rabbah with a lul- All he had in his hand was his esrog and his lulav, and that was it. They literally had to run for his life. He thought they were going to kill him. They were so against what he was, what he was doing. Eventually, in 1785, he arrived in Berdichev, and there he founded his famous Hasidic court. Berdichev, interestingly enough, was considered at the time a very secular Jewish place. Berdichev had the thinkers, the Haskalah followers, and the lazy Levi Yitzhak was as the Hasidish as you get. He was the Chassid's Chassid. He was the Rebbe of Rebbe's. They used to mock him. He was, I mean, you have to imagine, even today, the, you know, when you want to attack religion like the media likes to do today, they're going to mock 
especially in Israel, if you read the left-wing papers in Israel, when they talk about Haredim, Hasidim, they're going to look for anything they can get, any any crumb, and they, they'll make they'll, they'll make fun of. So they used to have plays making fun of Lazy Yitzchak or he said, plays about him. Yeah, the Hasidic Kedavah, the lady, so he da- they practice him davening, they all go, oh! They, they, would, they would imitate him. So actually, one, so one very well, rich aristocrat who was living in the town, he said, he went to laugh in his face. He said, this guy's so funny, let me go and see him. So he went to see a lady, and sucky, he had to have a good chuckle. He ended up becoming a chassid himself. <laughs> <laughs> Should have been that more people went to see him. Um, even to this day, his, his, his place of, of burial is a very popular place of prayer. He was considered the defender of the Jews. Okay? He once said he's legendary love for the Jews. He once said as follows. He said his love was so great for the Jews. He said, if I had to pass away, and after 120 years, if I had a chance of being alone in paradise, or with my fellow Jews in, 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 in H-E-L-L, I'd rather be in Gehenna, because at least I'd be with my fellow Jews. And he was always relating to Jews in a positive light. The story goes, he's once walking in the street and he saw a guy smoking on Shabbos. A young guy, and he asked the young man, he says, do you know it's Shabbos? Did you forget Shabbos? He, he said, I didn't forget Shabbos. I know it's Shabbos. He said, maybe something's, you, you, you must, something must be really bothering, you must be overwhelmed with something, you, 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 you're, you're not focusing on how severe Shabbos is. No, I'm completely aware today is Shabbos and I really don't care. So he raises the answer, he looks up, he says, Hashem, look how great your people are. Even to be a myth or a sinner, they'll do rather than lie. <laughs> right? He would always appear like a lawyer. He always called Hashem the merciful one. Right? He, he, had, he had a famous line. He would say, uh, you know, Kippur, he said, Rebbeinu Shalom, you have to forgive the Jewish people for their sins. You have to forgive them for their sins. And if you do, this is great. But if you don't forgive the Jewish people for their sins, I'm going to go ahead and publicly pronounce that Everyone's tefillin are possible and valid. How is that? Because your tefillin say that the Jewish people are your beloved and your chosen ones. How can you not forgive them? And that's what every tefillin say. If it's not true, the tefillin are possible. He once also said, he said, Hashem, it's not fair. You put all of the physical, sensual pleasures in the world where you can see, you can feel, and the world that comes is in the matter of books. You don't feel it and see it in front of you. He says, reverse it. Have all the spiritual pleasure in this world you can feel and see. And have the material pleasure in books. Then we'll see how people do in this world. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he would always look, you know, for the good. There's us, I said this story once in Shul. He once saw in the middle of davening a Jew go out with his talis and tefillin on and start greasing the wheels of his wagon. So he looks at the Hashem and says, Hashem, they even, when they go out to grease the wheels of the wagon, they'll put on the talis and tefillin. Look how holy these Jews are. The Chayzim Lublin, who was a great, holy, holy Jew, and a student of the, uh, the Mabit, much younger, he said he said to thank and bless the Almighty daily for bringing down the soul of Rebbe Levi Yitzchak. Levi Yitzchak was a very passionate Jew. He would serve Hashem out of ecstasy. He would jump on tables when he davened. This would, of course, be the things that would arouse the opposition. Here you have this great rabbi jumping on tables. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Not like a simple story over here. It's like a, a regular Tuesday in Shul. You know, he would jump on tables. He said in the night before Sukkot, he was so excited that he couldn't sleep at night before he did the, the Lulav and Esser the first time. One night, one time he said he, he saw a Lulav and Esser behind the glass uh, door, 
and he so lost focus, he smashed through the door, said the bracha, then looked at his hands, which were bleeding, which he didn't realize at the time. Rav Nachman of Breslov said that when he passed away, he passed the year two years, two years before Rav Nachman of Breslov, that whoever has eyes can see, can see that the light of the universe was extinguished. Rabbi Yitzhak was the ultimate vision of the Baal Shem Tov. Now, the primary disciple of the Magid in Poland was Rabnoyim Elimelech of Lezhinsk. He's, if you ever go to Poland, the big kever, one of the big places to visit in Poland is his uh, kever. You can see them have a, an oil there. They go there, like the bus will go to Uman. They go to Rabnoyim Elimelech. Rabnoyim Elimelech of Lezhinsk was the one who built up the idea of the tzaddik. That the tzaddik, the rabba, is the mediator between God and the common people. And he suggests that, th- that through him, God sends to the faithful earthly blessings. You can go to the tzaddik for a blessing. Get a bracha, send a kvittel. Kvittel is when you write out your requests to the tzaddik. And for health, life, livelihood, you want to find the shidduch, you want to have children, go to the tzaddik. The, the Hashem wants you to go to the tzaddik. The tzaddik is his mediator in this world. Go to the tzaddik because he's the source of blessing. Go to the tzaddik. Go to the rabbi. The rabbi will help you in life. And as the chassidus grew, it would have not only the rabbi tzaddik, but there was messianic overtures because the rabbi, in a sense, became a mini messiah. The rabbi became a mini messiah in his own. He was a panacea to an extent. The rabbi was an embodiment of Hashem in this world, and He through him, you can get blessing in this world. In the beginning, messianic fervor was not a major focus, although it was always there. Even in the time of Napoleon's invasion of Russia, you'll see of all people, the Hasidim are always talking about Messiah. You'll see in 1840, the Katsuka Rebbe of Yosef Lana talking about bringing Mashiach. But in its formative stages, the Hasidic movement focused wisely, and they would have gotten in more trouble, on personal growth and not national salvation. And they downplayed the Messianic element, which is always, always under the current in Hasidus. In the early 19th century, this Messianic current hit its highest with Rav Nachman and Breslov. Rav Nachman, although never claiming to be the Messiah, he, was, he had a cult of followers. They literally idolized Rav Nachman and Breslov. So much so, that when he passes away, Breslov, which is a vibrant Hasidic group, Till this day, and in fact, it's one of the most popular Hasidic groups, particularly in Israel today, never had a rebel again. Okay, Rav Nachman passed away 200 years ago, which means that the Breslovers have not had a rebel in the past 200 years, because he felt he was irreplaceable. He was one of a kind. That kind of Messianic fervor would only be repeated about 20 years ago with Chabad Hasidus where large segments, till this day, will claim he's the Mashiach. Okay, that's a lecture for its own. But that was always under, uh, 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 always under the current of the Rebbe, Messiah. It's not that far of a jump. Ray Wine, I once heard Ray Wine claim that this Messianic fervor that Hasidus brought was a key component in the beginning of Zionism. If you notice, which we'll discuss later, that when the Haskalah, when the reform and the enlightenment comes, it, the Hasidic movement crushes it. Very few Hasidim, as opposed to Western Europe, you don't hear of Hasidic Jews being caught up in the enlightenment 
or corporate reform. But Zionism, but Zionism would pull Hasidic children, many of them. In fact, some of the first presidents of Israel were children of Hasidic homes, which is why the Hasidim, many of this day, have strong negative feelings against Zionism. However, Wine contended that because of the Messianic, Enlightenment wasn't a Messianic movement, but Zionism from the beginning was always that fervor to go back to the land of Israel. It was always that fervor for redemption in the land of Israel. It was appealing to the Hasidic masses because they always had that spark of Messianism. And that was, if you look even at Rav Kook, who had become the foremost spokesman of religious Zionism, was from a Hasidic background. The illustrious opposition. As it spread, Hasidim were growing in numbers and really rehabilitating many, many Jews. Um, but they started to attract tremendous opposition. And when they went into the Talmudic bastion, rabbinic bastion of Lithuania, the Litvaks, that's when it really became um, violence, I would not say as good, but it became the tension increased tremendously. With the decline of Polish Jewry, Warsaw, Krakow gave way to Vilna. Vilna was, if you look at the shock, if you look at the great commentators of the 16th and 17th century, all in the Talmud, after the Chalmaniki, they were based in Vilna. The Vilna Gon's great-grandfather was the Ber HaGoyla. The Shach studied in Vilna. Many of the, the commentaries on Shokhanach were all coming from cities in, Vil, in Lithuania. Lithuania was the center of Torah of the time. It was the Bnei Brak. It was the Lakewood. It was where Torah was everywhere and where rabbis had a very strong hold of the communities. The characteristic Lithuania approach, my Bobby, my grandmother, who has a Hasidic background as you get. Her, she grew up in a home, my, my, she used to always tell me, my, my Menachem Mendel, my great-grandfather, would learn half a day Hasidus, with, he had pet, long payas and a bekashah and, a, and, and we wear tchelos and a sitzes because he was in a chassid. Right? But she always used to talk about me. She was just Polish chassid back in the day. That we, everyone would talk about Lithuanians and Poles. They were kluger. They were very smart. <laughs> Lithuanians and Poles, they looked at Lithuanians as very, very smart. They were the smart analytical ones. Lithuania was the place where Talmud was great. And although everyone said, oh, Litvak, it happens to be Lithuania had a sizable minority of Hasidim, including Chabad. That's where Chabad would be based. Slanim, Karlin, or Baron Karlin would be based there, and Kodinov as well. Now, before we go into the opposition, I just want to point out one thing. That Baal Shem Tov and his students did not pick the name Hasidim. <laughs> that was originally, in fact, it sounds like Hasidim, like doing good deeds. They didn't want to pick the name Hasidim. That originally was that the Lithuanians would mock them. They would call them Hasidim. They think they're so righteous because a lot of them were common people. You know, you have to imagine if a common person tries to be righteous without the background, they're going to mess up a little bit. They would laugh. These are Hasidim. They would make fun of it. And certainly, the Lithuanians and German Jewry in northern Hungary would also be very against the Hasidic movement, but it's so Lithuania. They didn't call themselves Misnagdim. <laughs> Misnagdim opponents were given to them by the Hasidim. They were given that name by the Hasidim. So we, they gave each other names. Um, the students of the Vilna call, go and call themselves Prussian, coming from the name Pharisees, and how, that was pejorative where we said, Prussian means people who yeah. abstain from things in this world. The early settlers of the land of Israel were called Prussian. Okay. 
the major personality who opposed, the greatest personality, there were many, many, many great rabbis who opposed the Hasidic movement, but the f- most famous and by far the greatest was the Vilna Goyim. The Hebrew word Goyim, which we discussed quite a few lectures ago, which Goyim really means pride. Originally, it was given to the Goyim, which were the great scholars that came right after the codification of the Talmud, the greatest scholars of the generation, and since then, for a select few, the name Goin was an appellation to the name, which means a genius of geniuses, a rabbi of rabbis, a great of greats. And Rabbi Eliel ben Shlomo Zaman Kramer was the great of greats. He was, went by his Hebrew acronym, the Grah. He was a Thomas Halachic authority. He was probably greatest in Kabbalah. He was the foremost leader of non-Hasidic Jewry in the past few centuries. He was called Hagoyin HaChassid Mivilna, the saintly genius of Vilna. He is one of the most influential rabbinic authorities since the Middle Ages, and so much so that amongst his students they considered him a Rishon, like a rabbinic authority of the Middle Ages. To this day, large groups of people, including many, many, many yeshivas, uphold the sets of customs and rites of the Groh, Minag HaGroh. The Jerusalem Minag follows Minag HaGroh, follows the customs of Vilna Goyin. He was born in Vilna and died in Vilna. The Goyin, while still a child, at the age of three years old, had committed Tanakh to memory. Okay. At the age of seven, he learned Bechavrusa with Moshe Margolis, who wrote the Pnei Moshe, which is one of the foremost commentaries of the Jerusalem Talmud. And at the age of seven, when he was learning with this, one of the elder sages of the generation, he had already committed to, by heart, several tracts of the Talmud. He had a photographic memory, and by eight, he's on his free time, he studied astronomy and math. And from the age of ten, he couldn't have no teacher anymore. By the age of 11, he had committed the entire Talmud. The entire Talmud. But that's not the Bar-Ilan program. <laughs> the entire Talmud to memory. In his, after in his teenage years, he decided to go into exile, which was a custom of some of the pious of the time. And by the time he was 20 years old, the senior sages were sending him questions. For professors from universities in Germany, because he traveled to Germany and Poland, tried to meet him as well. He had remarkable um, intellectual abilities, and the one person Vilna ever supported, who was not the rabbi of the town, was the Vilna. He refused to take the rabbinic position, but they realized that his Torah study was of such importance that the city of Vilna, when he returned, supported him. His diligence in learning was unsurpassable. His son writes in his Hakdama to one of his sefers, and he testified that his father for 50 years did not sleep, for 50 years, did not sleep more than two hours a day. His breadth of knowledge was amazing. He can say any word in the Talmud, how many times it came into the Talmud. How many times this rabbi is it? Like this, like a computer. Right? But not only was he brilliant beyond belief, his righteousness and his kindness was legendary. Despite his personal poverty, he always gave 20% of his income to charity. That's what his, some of his followers do as well. When he was informed of the need to marry off a child or to redeem a prisoner, he would ha- try to help him, even leave his studies to help raise money for the prisoner 
for the girl who couldn't get married without it. Just to give an example of the, the greatness of the Vilna Goyen, he was supported by the city of Vilna. However, there was a, a guy who was supposed to give him the money. But for years, the guy pilfered the money and did not give the money to the Vilna Goyen. And the Vilna Goyen, of course, he could have said something to him. He lived in extreme poverty, never said a word. And we would not know the story, but for the guy admitted on his deathbed that he regretted it, but he took the Vilna Goyen's money <laughs> and never gave it to the Vilna Goyen. He lived an ascetic life, right? and he believed literally that Torah had to come with whatever poverty and not be involved in, in this world. He, on his cover, it says the word, Hagoyin v'hachasid. Now the funny thing is, of course, the only guy was against Hasidim, but the, the word chasid here goes in a different tense. The guy loved the land of Israel. He loved in the land of Israel, so much so, he tried to travel to the land of Israel, but Various stories around the time of discuss it stopped him on this way. And on his way, actually wrote a famous letter called Igeris Hagra, or Alam Lutrufa, which is a very popular letter which he wrote to his family on the way. He never got there. However, in accordance with the Vilna Goyen's wishes, three groups of his disciples and their families, numbering over 500 families, made Aliyah to the land of Israel between 1808 and 1812. These groups of ascetics were called Prushim because they separated themselves from worldly pleasures to study Torah. First they went to Tzfas, but after encountering an earthquake and a plague, they moved to Jerusalem. And they would start the settlement of Jerusalem. By 1840, Jerusalem would have a majority Jewish population. That was the students primarily of the Vilna Goyen. They built Meisharim, they rebuilt the Chorba Synagogue, the Huda Chassid Synagogue, they built other neighborhoods. Rivlin, of course, is the Vilna Goyen's grandson, grandson, went there as well. There's a famous Ruby Rivlin, who was a politician. He is the son of the Vilna Goyen. They built the first settlements outside of the, the old wall of the city. And they beat the secular Zionists by 80 years. Which is why, when the secular Zionists would come 80 years later, it would be fierce clashes because they had very, very different ideologies. And the, the students of the Goyen felt they, they were there first. The students of the Garden, of course, of Shach was probably the greatest Litvak in Israel the past 50 years. Now, Shach not only was the leader of the Degel HaTorah, but he even founded Shas, which is a Sephardic party. They have had a tremendous influence on the state of Israel to this very day. The Grah, his scholarship and methods of study. The Vilma Garden was brilliant. He barely slept, as mentioned. He just took four catnaps of 30 minutes a day. And the rest of the time he studied. He used to put his feet in cold water when he would get tired to wake himself up. And he never wasted a minute. His students put 70 books out of his writings. For 40 years, he studied in complete isolation. But at the end of his life, he taught a group of distinct students who were themselves very well versed in Torah. His writings include works on the Babylonian Talmud, Shulchan Arach, his Biuri Grah, which is a running commentary on the Mishnah, Shnot Eliyahu, which, which is comments on Chomish, Adaris Eliyahu as well in Chomish, and numerous, numerous Kabbalistic works. The Goyen's greatest contribution, however, was that he applied philological methods to examining texts. In fact, one of the reasons he went to exile was to examine texts throughout Europe. And the Vilma Goyen he corrected all of the errors in the Talmud. Anything that was a little bit off, 
secret. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing that the five books he corrected. <laughs> that, people were always very careful. There's all kinds of rules, how you write over a safe Torah, but the Talmud did not have those scrupulous rules. And over time, errors came. And the Goyne not only used different texts, but he used his head <laughs> to fix the text. And he did that in Talmud, Bavli, Yushami, Shulchan Aruch, everywhere he, he wrote upon. Except for the conflict with the Hasidim, the Goyne almost never, ever took play, part in public life. He was a recluse. He just taught students and wrote works. That was his life. He studied 18 hours a day. He was very, very little bothered about what went on in the world, except when it came for the Hasidim. He taught not only Mishnah, Chomish, Diktuk, but he was especially careful to teach the Jerusalem Talmud. Because until the Villagrain's day, the Jerusalem Talmud had been forgotten by the sages. He taught the Midrashic works, which were less popular at the time. He encouraged his chief student, Rabbi Chaim Volozhin, to establish the Volozhin Yeshiva, which was the mother of all yeshivas, which is the greatest yeshiva of the 19th century, which existed for nine years, and all other yeshivas, almost all yeshivas, were built, mimicked Volozhin. Both Hasidic yeshivas, the yeshivas in Hungary, in fact, when Mayor Lublin went to start Kachmei Lublin, which is the greatest yeshiva in Poland, the Hasidic yeshiva, he went to see how the Lithuanian yeshivas were modeled first. And they were, of course, all built off Volozhin. His analytical method became the method to our very day. In fact, if you go to the Hasidic yeshivas today, they learn like the Litvaks. The method of the Goyen became the primary method of teaching Gemara. He's also the Vilna Goyen, thought secular knowledge is very important. He was fluent in math, fluent in Euclid. He convinced one of his students, Rebach of Shklov, to actually translate Euclid's works into Hebrew. A mathematical work called Ayal Meshulos, which is based of a random three parts, uh, is attributed to the Vilna Goyen. Kramer's theorem is also, according to many people, attributed to the Vilna Goyen. For this reason, somewhat ironically, even though the Vilna Goyen was the person of altar, some of the secularists tried to use him as an example of having a broad Renaissance uh, approach to life. He died at 1797, at the age of 77, and was built, or was buried in the Snipkis Cemetery in Vilnius. That cemetery was closed in 1831. In the 1950s, the Vilna Cemetery was going to be plowed over to build a, uh, a theater by Lithuania. This is in the middle of the Cold War, and there's not too much they can do. Right. Pinchas Taitz, who was the rabbi of Elizabeth, actually negotiated and moved the Vilna Goyen and the Ger Sedek, Avram ben Avram, who was a famous individual, which you can ask me afterwards about, and he moved the kever. The story goes that when they moved the Vilna Goyen's kever, and I actually, when I was in the Mir Yeshiva in Israel, I roomed with Ray Taitz's grandson, who corroborated the story, that when they moved the kever, that they saw the body of the Goyen was whole. It was completely whole. It had not decomposed in the 160, 170 years in, not, in the early 1950s when it got moved. And that of the four people, three of them actually looked at the Goyen's face and those three died in the year. That's what, and his grandson told me the same thing. That's, that the fact that people died is a fact. <laughs> the fact that they moved in is a fact. The fact that they died in the year because it's in the face, that's what people say. Um, but despite the Vilna Goyen's opposite to the Chesidish, the interesting thing is, even to this day, the Goyen was considered the greatest rabbi, even by the Hasidim. In fact, to his credit, when some of the Hasidim and the Balatanya danced 
There's in the streets, which we'll see what will be a cause for fighting afterwards, when the Zola Gaon died, the Balatanya wrote a public letter, which you can read to the state, you can Google if you choose, referring to the Zola Gaon as Halgoin, Hachasid, Mivoma, the genius, the righteous one of Vilma, and that nobody should, God forbid, speak a word negative about him, only about his greatness. There's a statue in Vilma to this day about the Vilma going, um, and we're in Vilma. Okay. Now, why do the Grah oppose Hasidics? The interesting thing is, in 1755, as discussed in the last lecture, when Rabbi Yudas in Eidschitz was 65 years old, under attack from Yaakov Emden for his amulets, we saw these two great scholars. And Rabbi Yaakov Emden was accusing Rabbi Yonish and Abshitz of being a follower of the Sabbateans. Rabbi Yonish and Abshitz sent a letter to a 35-year-old Vilma Goyim. Now, the 65, these are the two great sages in an Altona fight, uh, were, were fighting. So he asked the Vilma Goyim to look over the amulets and to, to give his opinion so people will listen to the Vilma Goyim. So the Vilma Goyim wrote back, to be honest, from a young man like myself, who's a stranger to this agreement, I don't think that anyone will listen to my word. And he says, although I think you are correct to be an innocent Ibschitz, who is 30 years older than him, I feel that I can't put my name into this battle. That was not the case 20 years later. Because in 20 years later, in the year 1772, we'll see that Vilma Goyen writes the first excommunication of the Hasidic movement. Now, what worried the Vilma Goyen? Now, the Goyim was not worried about Kabbalah. He himself was great, great in Kabbalah. But the Vilna Goyim first objected to that Hasidus said you can see God in all things. He said it's cl- too close to pantheism. Now, again, not the pantheism of Spinoza, but the pantheism that you can see God in this standard, you can see God here, you can see God everywhere. Like Chabad Hasidus really focused on that. He said that God is all and all is God. You ever hear, you go to anyone who goes to Camp God Israel, Hey, Hashem is here, Hashem is there, Hashem is truly over. I can tell you, every my kids, my kids go to Ghana as well. They ask me, where is, that? is Hashem really here? Is Hashem really there? Then what does that mean? So, it's a long discussion, but to say the least, the only one did not agree with that. Not only did he not agree with it, Allah didn't agree with that. And of course, God creates the world, and God gives power, but this is not God. And you can't think that everywhere you're going to see a spark of God. And the going was concerned that these kind of ideologies, which were prevalent in the Sabbatean movement, will lead to another Shabtai Tzvi. Moreover, the Goyen really did not like this concept of Rebbe. He felt that who said that you can connect to a Rebbe and that's going to uplift you? That's like idolatry. There's a different religion who claims that. Hasidism preached miracle workers. They would give all kinds of stories to the Rebbe's. And they said the Baal Shem Tov and his students there are all kinds of Hasidic stories about the Rebbe's. These were viewed by the Nostalgian with suspicion and disdain. Moreover, what if the Rebbe was a fake? And everyone's going ahead and following him, claiming he can do all of these powers. Another thing that Volnagoyim was concerned of was a de-intellectualization of Torah amongst the people. It used to be that Torah was paramount, and now, and now, you have dancing and singing and joy. What's going to happen with Torah study? Talmud Torah, you're not going to have Torah rates. My Rosh Hashiva of Zelig Epstein was a product of the Lithuanian Shiva movement. is one of the greatest Lithuanian Rosh Hashivas in America who passed away two years ago at the age of 97. So he told me this was the greatest concern of the Vilna Goyen. 
And he says, if you look in the past 200 years, almost all of the great Talmidicham, the greatest poskim, are almost exclusively Lithuanian, even to this day. Whether it's the Chazanish, the Moshe Feinstein, most of the poskim, most of the great Talmudists, if you go to the Hasidic Yeshivas, you'll see who they learn. Rebbech Ber Lubavitch, Rebbech Wasserman, they're learning Gemara, they're learning Lithuanian poskim. <laughs> that Torah is great, study is great, you'll find a Lithuanian world. Because once you have other focuses, you don't have that complete investing in Torah. Rav Yasha is the greatest posik today. Right? Before, these are all Lithuanians. Okay? You don't have that complete devotion to Torah, you're not going to produce the scholarship of the Lithuanian world. It happens to be, I will mention them, Arash Hashiva also told me, 200 years later, that of course, the Hasidic movement is a valid movement. It's Elu Ve'elu, both are, are, are valid. But he said, to be a Hasid, he said to me, doesn't mean to dress like the Hasid. You can't say you're a Satmar Hasid, or a Lubavitch Hasid, or a Breslov, or Bells, because you dress like that. That doesn't make you a Hasid. A Hasid is a valid method if you live a Hasidic life, if that's what your essence is, not the way you dress, or the language you speak. The Vilma Goyen also didn't like the emphasis of different areas of law. He really objected to the dancing and the exuberance of the Hasidic prayer. He felt it was out of control. And finally, the Vilma Goyen, the Noyzi Gidu, the Chief Rabbi of Prague, and others objected that the Hasidim changed the prayer service. They changed the Nusach, the liturgy of the prayer, to use much more of their Rizal. And that prayer service had been the way the Ashkenaz prayer has been there since pretty much since the times of Rashi. And they flipped it to put in all these Kabbalistic intentions. That aroused the opposition of many. Look at source number two. This was the first excommunication of the Hasidim. Signed in April 1772 by the Vilna and dozens of other rabbis. Our brethren, sons of Israel, 1772, as you know, new people have appeared, unimagined by our forefathers, and they associate amongst themselves, and their ways are different from the other children in their liturgy. They behave in a crazed manner, and say that their thoughts wander in all worlds, and they belittle the study of Torah, and repeatedly claim that one should not study much, nor regret one's sins. I, be happy. Don't worry so much about your sins. Therefore, we have come to inform our brethren, children of Israel, from near and far, and top sound to them, the voice of excommunication and banishment until they, they themselves repent completely. This letter was then brought to, to Brody, which was the big merchant fair at the time, was used to be held every year at Brody, and was publicly pronounced and Brody. It stunted it in Lithuania, and it created the first transition. However, by 1781 is when the Balatanya had went into Lithuania, and that really caused the next excommunication. And the next communication came, the Vilma Goyen actually said that they are heretics, and it's forbidden to marry them. It's forbidden to marry them. Now, I'll tell you this funny story. When I got engaged, when I got engaged, to my wife, so I told her Rosh Hashiva, I said, I got engaged, she said, who? This is Rachel Rabbi Zakheim's granddaughter. Oh, Rabbi Zakheim, my wife's grandfather, was a very prominent role in Brooklyn for 60 years. He taught in Chaim Berlin Yeshiva. All his children were successful business people, but his grandfather was a very prominent role. And he said he was from Volkovsk. And in Volkovsk, even till World War II, they followed the Vilna Gaines Cherem, they did not marry Hasidim up to World War II. Now, I thought that was very funny, 
considering my wife's grandmother on her mother's side was a direct descendant of the Balatanya. <laughs> so, obviously they didn't all follow that, uh, that, that Chayon of the Vilna Goyen. But they actually did not enter marriage for many, for many years. That was forbidden under excommunication um, to marry. And from 1781 to 1796, the fight was quelled. And the Hasidim said that the Vilna Goyen changed his mind. He changed his mind. We're now, it's okay now. So the Vilna got upset and he sent out a letter with two students throughout Poland, White Russia, to go into the Vilna Goyen still holds with the same force and the excommunication is still there. Now, Hasidism is still growing in certain parts. It was stunted in others, and in others it just never attracted. In Western Europe, in Germany, Hasidic women never held God for. In Northern Hungary and in Prague, it never really took hold. But it did take very much hold in places like Poland, in Southern Poland, northern, in, in Ukraine, and, and, and it spread. When the Vilna Goyen died, as I mentioned, some people danced in the streets. Now, you know what, that, that, that what it's like? Imagine going to a baseball game, and you're the opposing team's fan, and you start making fun of the opposing team. What happens to you? <laughs> so you're, you're, not, you're not doing an intelligent thing. Well, they dance in the streets of Vilna, of all places. I, that was a little bit provocative. And even the Balkan sent out his letter. That was it. You have to imagine, the Vilna Gain was, the, he wasn't the greatest scholar of his generation. He was considered the genius of geniuses going way back. Going way back. The Vilna Jewish Council then took an extremely hostile position. Not only excommunications, but flogged some of the Hasidim. Okay? And pushed them incessantly. The Hasidim then did a foolish thing, a very foolish thing, which... Others have made a mistake since then. And they reported to the Russian government. Now, the Russian government was hated. <laughs> okay? By all. But they told the Tsar that the Jewish council is coming against you. And they started to throw some of the Jewish council, the Vilna Jewish council, into jail. Well, the, the Misnagin fought fire with fire. They told that the Hasidim are really revolutionaries. And they're coming against you. And they threw 22 Hasidim in jail, including... The Balatani. Now that, that the Balatani went to jail. Um, they brought him to St. Petersburg and by Chabad Hasidism, the fact that he was freed to this day is celebrated as a holiday. Uh, um, I, I, you know, I, I will say this, that considering that a lot of the fight was with Chabad, I personally, and I have much appreciation, I still think Chabad was traumatized to this day because if you look at Chabad, of all the Hasidic groups, they never joined with everyone else. Whether it was a good doll or anything else, they were always not open to hear what anyone else had to say. And I think, even when the Mishichas thing happened, and many, many people told them, back off, they were not open. And I think a lot of it happened because in the beginning, it was they who were under duress. They who were under attack. And they always felt that, that you know, when you, you're, you're thoroughly under pressure, you have to live by your own rules. You can't listen to anyone else. I, I personally think that, that it, it carried over a little, a little bit till today. By 1804, 1804 the dispute largely um, ended, and partially because of Chaim Velazhin, who is now the leader of Lithuanian Jewry, took a more peaceful method. They reconciled themselves. The Hasidic movement was there to stay. It was there to stay. And consequently, for the next 60 years, there was a cold peace. <laughs> a cold peace between the Hasidic movements and the non-Hasidic movements. But by the mid-19th century, 
things changed. And that's because of the influences of modern changes in Jewish society. They had arrived from the East and West, in Europe, secularizing Haskalah, the Enlightenment, which we'll discuss in the next lecture, the unsuccessful revolution of Napoleon, and there became a, a movement for Haskalah. Now, Haskalah, now if you think about an enlightened Jew, think of the German or French enlightened Jew, who are they going to be most against? Certainly the Hasidim, because the Hasidim were the most insular. Okay, even today, if you look at Satmar, Hasidim, and Williamsburg, they are much more insular than any other Jewish faction, Hasid or not. It's a very insular community. They've come totally against their grain. So Haskalah really, really went after the Hasidim, and they mocked them, and they made fun of them, but they didn't just pick on the Hasidim, they picked on the yeshivas, and both the Lithuanian, German, Orthodox worlds, the Hasidic world, found themselves under attack. Well, the fact that they found themselves under attack forced them to permanently reconcile. And they realized, listen, bottom line is, you know, the Chavetz Chaim himself used to say, that when you get to Shemayim, they're going to put a Torah in front of you. They're not going to ask you if you're a Chassid. They're not going to ask you if you're a Lithuanian. They're not going to ask you if you're a Yekka. They're going to ask you to keep the Torah. The Chassidim kept the Torah. That was clear. They had been around for a hundred years. The Lithuanians kept the Torah. People knew they kept the Torah. They said, listen, we're all keeping the Torah. The people who are coming against us don't keep the Torah, and they don't want us to keep the Torah. Right? And they joined together. The ultimate joining of this was in the early 20th century when a Guru was formed, which not only joined the major Hasidic movements and the Litvaks, but also German Orthodoxy and the followers of the Chassam Seifer in Hungary. That formed to be a Guru, and they all worked together till this very day, 100 years later. The other thing that took off to be blunt for the Hasidic-Lithuanian battle was as time went on, the Lithuanian movement got into the Muslim movement, and the Muslim movement is not that far off as far as the psychological analysis, the working on the heart, and a lot of the Hasidic things, and the fact that the Hasidim went much more into Torah study. Certain Hasidic groups actually focused tremendously on uh, Torah. Look at source number three. This is of a Shlomo Lawrence who grew up Hasidic, and he was in the Knesset for many years. He was one of the religious representatives in the Knesset. He learned in Mir Yeshiva later, and he grew, started in Papa first. The Admor of Aaron of Bell's quoted his father as having said, There is no greater Hasidus than the debates of Abaya and Rabbah. All Hasidus can be found in the Gemara. Rashi and Tosfus. You will find fear of heaven in the Torah and Beis Yosef, and also in the Shulchan Aruch, Taz Magan Avram. The base Yisrael of Gor, of Ger, said studying Hasidus is all well and good, on condition that it follows the in-depth study of Gemara and Tosfus. The Papa Rebbe was of the opinion that there is no longer any reason for the quarrel between Hasidim and Misnagdim. Most of the differences no longer exist, except for semantics. All we have left is this Torah studying and teaching in the plain sense, straightwardly regarding, carrying out, and upholding everything written in the Shulchan Aruch and the Postkin. That was something that everyone could agree on. You know, my, my wife's grandmother, Rabbi Zakam, she's living to be well, so I was in New York recently for my sister's wedding. I mentioned I was going to speak at the Hasidim and luscious Apostles. Now my wife's grandmother, she's a distractant of the Baal Hatanya, her, gra- her father was not a Chabad Chassid. He was a Chassid of the Bostoner. 
fact, he brought the Bostoner to Williamsburg, the father of the Boston Rebbe, who came from Jerusalem in the 1920s. Her, my wife's great-grandfather on that side, he was a Hasidic Jew, he has hundreds, hundreds of descendants are all religious. I'm not going see them. And she, my wife's grandmother, married a prodigy of the Lithuanian movement. So she told me that her father should tell her the following story. He said there was once a father, a really rich guy, a really, really rich guy, and he said, he went to the Shiva in town, he said, I want a son-in-law who's a Torah scholar, a Talmudic scholar. I want a son-in-law who's a Torah scholar. Who can he give me? Oh, the Shiva's not a great boy. He's unbelievable. He's great. I just have to tell you one thing, though. He only eats fleshics. In those days, he could get supported in the beginning of marriage. He only eats fleshics. Would you agree? I said, oh, he's a Talmudic scholar. He's great. He only eats fleshics. I don't care. Let him eat fleshics. Okay, great. A couple years later, another daughter comes to the block. Goes back to Shashiva. I'm so happy with the first son-in-law. I need a new son-in-law for my daughter. I'm willing to support him. I love a Torah scholar. Could he give me? He's oh, a great scholar. He's great. Need this. He's a great guy. One problem. What's the problem? He only eats milkshakes. He <laughs> ah, only eats milkshakes. Okay, this is fine. Ah, so he had two son-in-laws. One ate fleshes, one ate milkshakes. They never ate together. Ever. You know, one ate fleshes, one ate milkshakes. But they had nothing to do together. Over time, the father-in-law lost his money. He lost it all! Nothing left! Finally, he had nothing left except for a little herring. And both <laughs> son-in-laws were forced to come to the father-in-law and eat herring together. So the one son-in-law said to the other son-in-law, when you had your milks and we had our fleshics, we didn't eat together. Now all we have left is herring! We eat together! So, right? just, so he says, it used to be the Chassidim had this and Lithuanians had this. And now we only have a little herring left. We all eat together. I mean, the device's not there anymore. Originally, what happened, it was not there. In hindsight, certainly the Hasidic movement, while it did initially cause a serious split in the Jewish world, it did not create a permanent separation. In fact, as mentioned, the Guru today, through any Guru convention, you see both in Israel and America, they work hand-in-hand together, and intermarriage is widespread. Um, we see uh, Hasidic sets who are very scholarship-minded today, Hasidim are no longer viewed as liberal revolutionaries. They are, in fact, the conservative stalwarts amongst uh, many of Orthodox Jews and are easily recognized for their dress. Right? They are not viewed as progressive by many. Um, in hindsight, we see the Hasidic movement contributes significantly to the revitalization of Eastern European Jewry. It kept a lot of Jews connected, especially a lot of unlearned Jews who would have been lost to reform communism and secular Zionism like many would be in the 19th century. However, Hasidism not only became a reactionary movement to the time, but it became a valid movement for Jews to connect to Hashem. Look at source number four. This is Arya Kaplan. Hasidim uplifted the masses, but it would be wrong to suppose that its teachings were de- designed solely as a kind, uh, as a kind of spiritual medicine. Necessary when one is ill, but of no value for the healthy. An important teaching of Hasidim is that, that its insights are important to the spiritual well-being of every Jew. Although its masters aimed much of their energies at helping poor illiterate Jews, it would be incorrect to say that this was the main characteristic of Hasidism, since the movement also brought new vision and depth to the entire body of Jewish thought. And the pressure brought by the Misnagdim against the Hasid in the beginning was a break from originally keeping to go too far. Look at source number five. Source number five 
It's a of Avram, Yitzchak, Hakai, and Kok. First chief rabbi of the state of Israel. A chassid who studied in the prior, the, the main Lithuanian yeshiva of Volozhin. If you would see how he dressed, he always dressed chassidic. But he was a student of Chaim Salavechik and the Tzidah of Lithuanian greats. This is what he says. The Hasidic movement also arose from this claim for spiritual inspiration that had become dormant. After all this, there was the great peril that the nation might spurn altogether every vestige left it from the treasure of the living spiritual inspiration. The result would have been sole dependence on a study of texts and the zealous performance of actions, the mitzvahs and the customs. The people would have become bowed in body and crushed in spirit. In the end, they would have been unable to survive from a lack of vitality and uplifting of spirits. Rav Kook continues, future generations might well have lost the blessings of revival in Hasidism had it not been purified by suffering as a result of the fiery opposition from the shining light of Yisrael's tradition of Talmudic learning centering in the practical disciplines of life. He himself felt the living force of inspiration, but for him, it, it, this was peripheral to his primary concern, textual study. I'm referring to the school of thought of Rabbi Eliyahu, the Goyin of Vilna. He fought the spread of the divine inspiration of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, which had not been sufficiently grounded in textual study, thus creating the danger that it might become estranged from its roots in the Jewish tradition in the course of time. Look at source number six. This is by Menachem Mendel of Lubavitch, the third Lubavitch Rebbe, known by his work, the Tzemach Tzedek. Our wholly devoted people, the Hasidim, do not know and are unable to appreciate the very benefit and immense kindness in that what the Vilna going did for us by quarreling with us. They are not on the level of spiritual development to attain a proper conception of the tremendous gratitude we owe him and those who wage the battle. We are children in the generations after us. For if not for that fierce controversy, there would really have been a basis and a reason to worry and suspect the new doctrine we developed for us, or rather that our fathers developed for us in storm and stress, would slowly, slowly lead us step by step gradually further and further away from the limits set for the authentic tradition of Torah and religious observance. And it would have been a great anxiety without foundation that according to the force of the enthusiasm, exaltation, and elevation of the spirit and the progress of the new doctrine that captured by the storm the hearts of its creators and makers, originators and founders. In the end, Talmudic learning would have been charred by the fire of Kabbalah, that the hidden Torah of mysticism would diminish most of the stature and eminence of the overt visible Torah, and that the actual mitzvahs to be observed in deeds would come to be held in low esteem. In the fa- face of the blazing emotions evoked by the mystic intentions and one's de- religious devotions, had all this come true, we would have been lost on our road, heaven forbid. The contri- controversy was therefore like a barrier against catastrophe for, for us, like a cast iron furnace against a raging sea. Moreover, the Halakha Compendium, known as the Shokhan Al-Kharav, written by my grandfather, the author of the Tanya, I know with certainty that it was created only on account of the controversy in order to draw the hearts of our faithful people closer to a way of life according to the doctrine of Halakha, and thus to magnify the prestige and honor of the overt non-mystic Torah. 
to influence them to devote their time and energy to a preoccupation with the laws of Torah, with a proper intention and concentration, with an attitude of reverence and appreciation. To this controversy, we must give thanks for the revelation of this treasure of illumination. If the controversy came only that we should be granted these violence, it would have been beneficious enough for us. As you all know today, the Hasidim are accepted, the Lithuanians are accepted. Both are valid are valid uh, approaches as long as we can do as, as long say I want to ask Shiva, you know, if a person is born Hasidic or born Lithuanian, does that mean they have to do? And the answer is, well, it helps if you have that tradition. But the bottom line is that Jew has to pick which avenue they're actually keep the Torah. Because the real question at the, is like the Chavetz Chaim to say, it's not going to be how you dressed. It's not going to be how you enunciated things. The real question is going to be how you read the Torah. The next lecture will be those who came against the Torah. The next lecture will be on emancipation, Mendelssohn, and the rise of reform. Thank you.